We're in Revelation chapter 6, and uh, we're entering the tribulation, which I've felt like I've been in all week. Quite honestly, as I've studied this, it has been one of the most difficult sermons I've had to prepare, I would say, in, in at least a year. But uh, I want us to engage with this and to, I believe God wants to speak to us. I think as we go through it, the only way to go through it is slowly. I think if we skim over it, we'll never really feel like we understand it. And so we're going to take our time. We will be taking a natural break after this week for a few weeks from Revelation, just by the way the preaching order works and so on. So, and, uh, but we will get into Revelation 7 in a few weeks' time. Mary is talking to her friend Julie, and she's discussing her daughter's terrible marriage. She's so unhappy, says Mary. The stress of her marriage is affecting her appetite. She's lost two stone In two months, she's so stressed. That's terrible, says Julie. But if she's that unhappy, why doesn't she just leave him? She will soon, Mary replies. She just wants to lose another half stone. Um, And the point of that is sometimes we will go through pain if we know there's something better on the other side. And that's kind of the picture of Revelation. For those people who are enduring suffering for the gospel, the whole point of Revelation is this. There's something on the other side. It's worth persevering. It's worth enduring. It's worth keeping going. It's worth being faithful to Jesus because on the other side of the suffering and the pain and the persecution and the rejection, there is something so much better. There is something worth waiting for. And we have seen as we've gone through this book, we've seen that this Apostle John, he's about 90 years old, he's followed Jesus his whole life, as in the island of Patmos for his faith in Jesus. He's an old man, but he still loves Jesus. And he's been persecuted. But in the middle of this, he has this, this vision, this revelation. And the word revelation we keep saying is, is, is the word apocalypsis. It means to reveal, to unveil, to pull back the curtain. The curtain is pulled back and he begins to see the invisible spiritual world. He begins to see that there's more to life than meets the eye. That there's things that happen to us in life and we think that's it because we're physical creatures and we go by taste and touch and sight and smell and what we hear and and all of those things. But beyond those things, there's an invisible spiritual world around us that we don't see. And what John is seeing is the curtain is pulled back and he gets to see that there's more to life than what we physically see. And we all need to know that at times. That's why Paul told the Ephesian church, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness in in the heavenly realms. That when things happen here on earth, we assume that they're just things that happen. We assume they're circumstances or coincidences or, or just random occurrences. And sometimes that is the case, but sometimes there is a spiritual dimension behind them. Sometimes there is something more spiritual going on than we can understand. I'm prompted to tell a story. I know I've told it on a Sunday night here. and I just I feel prompted to share it this morning here now. Um, I, I shared it a few months ago on a Sunday night, I think. About in our last church, there was a family who had a young child called Kieran. And Kieran was a, a triplet, actually. And two of the triplets were completely healthy. And Kieran had epilepsy and autism. Isn't that right? And uh, they had planned... Uh, I haven't told this on a Sunday morning, I don't think. 
Have I told them in the morning? No, just in the evening. Okay. Um, Kieran had epilepsy and autism. Lovely family. And for that, because of that reason, they hadn't been able to have a holiday in many years. They decided they'd book a holiday to Italy. And they were so excited about going to Italy. Kieran hadn't had... He was roughly having one seizure every five, six weeks before this. The day before their holiday, they were due to fly out at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning from Dublin to Italy. The day before they were due to fly, he had nine seizures. And, and his dad phoned me and he said, we can't go on holidays tomorrow. Kieran's had nine seizures. And in that moment, I felt the Lord say, this is not just physical. This is spiritual. The devil has overplayed his hand here. I mean, no seizures for five weeks, nine seizures in one day. Just happens to be the day before he goes on holidays. And I said, just hold off. I said, I'm going to email you a prayer now, and I want you to pray this over your son and see what happens. And I sent him a prayer. As his father, he had authority over his son. And it was, I take authority in the name of Jesus. I have authority in the heavenly realms over my son because he's my child. And if the enemy wants to get at my son, he has to go through me, and I command all seizures to stop. And in that moment, they stopped. And for 10 months, that kid didn't have a seizure. 10 months. And they saw a vast improvement in his speech after that and many things. It looked like it was just a physical thing, but there was a spiritual thing behind it. Now, I'm not saying everything is caused by a demon. I'm not saying everything has a spirit. But many of the things that we assume are physical, there's also a spiritual dimension because we live in a physical and a spiritual world. And so John gets the curtain pulled back and he gets to see into that realm. He gets to see into the spiritual world. And every chapter and every letter and every word was written to give God's people hope in what seemed like a hopeless world, in the midst of pain and suffering and heartache and despair. It's written to encourage them to say, stay faithful, keep going, endure just a little bit longer. It'll all be worth it. And some of you need encouragement this morning. Some of you are struggling. And I want to say to you, just endure It's one of those things that we don't talk about a lot in the the modern Christian world. Endurance and perseverance. And yet as you read the scripture, those words come up again and again. That the Christian life is not just your best life now. Okay? It is endurance and it is perseverance and it is keeping going because there is a better life ahead. And, and, and it's to stay bold and fearless, not to compromise to your culture, not to give in to the pressure around you. Even when all hell seems to be coming against you, keep going because you're on the winning side. God wins and you're on his team. And it's a message we all need to hear. But the thing we see is this, and we're going to say it today, that before things get better, they're probably going to get a whole lot worse. Sorry to depress you, sorry to bring you down, but really, if you read the papers, if you watch the news, it's not that big a shock. Before things get better, they're probably going to get worse. I heard a story about a pastor who stood up one Sunday and announced he was leaving the church to move somewhere else. Don't cheer, it's not me. And uh, after the service, he stood at the door saying goodbye to his congregation. And he shook the hand of an elderly lady as she walked out. And she said, I'm so sorry to hear you're leaving. Your successor won't be anywhere near as good as you. And he was flattered. And he said, oh, shucks, you know, nonsense. I'm sure he'll be better than me. And she said, no, really. That's what the last five ministers have all said. And each one has been much worse than the last. 
And the world's a bit like that. We keep thinking as humanity progresses, as technology progresses, as education progresses, as we become more and more civilized, the world will get better. But what's happening? It's getting worse. That we, we keep thinking we'll reach some human utopia where we'll all, you know, join together and drink Coca-Cola and live in harmony and, 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 and teach the world to sing the same song. And, and that is not the case. If anything, it's getting more polarized and more divided and more walls are going up. Build the wall and, 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 oh, I shouldn't have said that. And, uh, the views of Craig Cooney are not necessarily the views of Hope Community Church. And, uh, but it is getting more polarized and it's getting more nationalistic. And while we're trying, while, while we're trying to pull all the nations together, it seems like actually there's more division and more hostility and more violence and more war and more craziness than ever. And yet in the midst of this, we need to be a people of unshakable hope and unrelenting faith. We need to be a people not of cynicism, not of despair, but real hope because we know that God is on the throne and he's in charge. He's on the throne and that's when we get to the the tribulation, when we get to the next 14 chapters which most preachers don't like to preach, we need to view them through the lens of Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room. That in the midst of everything that happens, God is in control. In the midst of the chaos and the suffering and the despair and all of the judgments, God is on the throne. He knows what he's doing. He's exacting his judgment. He's cleaning up. He's, 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 he's getting rid of the filth in the world. He is purifying. He is purging. And he is getting ready for Jesus to come back and for all things to be made new. That is what we've got to remember because if we don't remember that, this will get very depressing. We need to keep remembering, as I keep saying, that our little story is part of his big story and his big story ends in glory. And there is so much more. There's so much more. It's like having one or two pieces of a jigsaw and you don't know where they fit in and then suddenly God holds up the whole picture and you see where your little piece fits in to the big picture. That's what the curtain being pulled back does. And so in chapter 5 we had this scroll that we read last week. This scroll with seven seals. And it is the scroll of, of human history, God's plan unfolding. That every time a seal is opened, it's a little bit more of God's plan unfolding. And, 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 and John weeps because there's no one who can open the scroll. But then we are told that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, he's the one because of his sacrifice, because of his resurrection, he is the one who can open the scroll, he sees, he oversees the unfolding of history. And so the pressure builds the tribulation. So in chapter 6, each seal on the scroll is opened. And what we see isn't pleasant and it isn't pretty. It's called the tribulation. Most of you will have heard that word. Or the great tribulation. And the word tribulation literally just it comes from the word for pressure. It means intense pressure, almost a sense of being hemmed in, of being crushed in the middle of two things. And that's really what's happening here. There's this, there's this, there's this crushing. Because as God's kingdom 
advances and presses in against the enemy's kingdom, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of darkness, there's this crushing. And those who are caught in the middle of God's kingdom and, and the enemy's kingdom, there's a crushing, there's a pressing, there's a tribulation, there's, a, there's an intensity that happens. I, I did GCSE geography. I don't remember much, but I do remember this. Tectonic plates. Remember tectonic plates. That the earth's surface is is made up of tectonic plates. And when these tectonic plates move together, they move very, very slowly. But sometimes they come together and very slowly they collide and they clash against each other. And not much happens to begin with. But as the pressure builds, it becomes so intense that what happens? There's an earthquake. Or a volcano. And that's kind of what's happening here. Is that God's kingdom is like one tectonic plate. And the enemy's kingdom is like another. And as the two clash and, clash and collide. There's this pressure that builds up. And that's where the tribulation comes in. So what does John see as these seals are opened? As these kingdoms clash? John sees a vision of four men on horses being released. And Revelation 6, I only realized this week, I'd never noticed this before. Revelation 6 corresponds very closely with Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus, he's in the Mount of Olives, they come down privately and they say, tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of the coming, of your coming at the end of the age? So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, how do we know you're coming back? What will be the signs? What should people look for to know that Jesus is returning? And he gives them a number of signs in order. And in order, they're almost identical to the first six seals of Revelation chapter 6. And as you read them, you might think, you know what? These things have always happened. And you read about earthquakes and wars and famine. The response of most people is, well, for thousands of years we've had earthquakes and wars and famines, and that makes sense. I agree with that. But he also says this at the end of it, if you go to the next slide there. He says this, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I am no expert in childbirth, although I was in the room. I said for years I would never be in the room, but I manned up. And I went into the room. And uh, I have to say, it, it's, it's, not, it's not pleasant. Um, I, mean, it was, I mean, it was fine for Bex, I have to say. She, she, she was fine. It was pretty easy for her. For us men, it is not easy. Um, honestly. Um, two epidurals, she's out of it. Like, she could la, la, la. But uh, for us men, no, no. I'm going to get such a beating when I get home. Um, but it's not. But, but here's, here's, what, here's what this birth pains thing is trying to say. That, that as, as the baby is getting closer to being born, the pains start slowly and they're mild. But then they build in frequency and intensity. It's true. Contractions. They get closer together and they get more intense. And that's what Jesus here is trying to say. Yes, these things have always happened. But once you see them start increasing in frequency and intensity, which I believe we're seeing today, you will know that the end is near. If I was preaching this 10, 15 years ago, I probably would have preached this totally differently. But when you look at what has happened really since 2001, 
9-11 and, and all of that. The world has changed so radically. So, like, it's just so different than it was 20 years ago. And so when I preach this now, this feels like I'm reading the news sometimes. Um, and so when we see these things increase in frequency and intensity, we know that the end is near. And I don't have time to go into it, but most scholars would say that the tribulation lasts seven years. It lasts seven years. And the first three and a half years of the tribulation and the last three and a half of the great tribulation. We'll get into that because the rest of Revelation kind of unfolds. This is almost like a summary. But let's get into these horses to begin with. And I'm going to go through them slowly so that you can understand a little bit about what they are. The first horse. Put up the first horse there. Horse one. I call it deception and false peace. There before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror about bent on conquest. Okay, so that's what John sees in his vision. Jesus said this, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claim that I am the Messiah, and deceive many. I think this first horse is deception and false peace. And we all want peace. Globally, we want peace. Individually, we want peace. In families, we want peace. We even have a TV program called Give My Head Peace. We want peace in our lives. We will do anything for peace. We will take holidays for peace. We will take pills for peace. We want peace. And in Revelation, we seem to get peace. For three and a half years at least. Revelation 6, it talks about a white horse. Now, most people, when they say that, who do they immediately think of? Jesus. Isn't that right? Because in Revelation 19, Jesus rides in on a white horse. So most people think, well, this is Jesus. This is not Jesus. It can't be Jesus. Why? Because where's Jesus right now? Jesus is opening the scroll. Jesus is not on the horse. So who is this? It's someone, it's an imposter. It's someone, a deceiver. It's someone who's trying to be a false messiah and that's how it ties in with what Matthew has said so this person comes along as kind of a saviour figure someone who who people look up to someone who who seems to have this almost supernatural ability to bring peace to the earth the other thing it says here he was given a crown the word there for crown is Stephanos. If your name's Stephen, my actual name is Stephen Craig. Stephen means crown. But it's a crown that you're given as an award or reward for something. The crowns that Jesus has in 19 are called diadem, which is a kingly royal crown. This is a crown. It's almost like saying you've been given authority because of something you've done. That's a reward. We, as, as human beings on earth... I want to show our appreciation to you so we have given you a crown. So it's not a, a kingly crown, it's a crown he's been given. He's been given authority by humanity. Now this is important. I want you to stick with me here, okay? And it says he's got a bow. But what's he not got? If you've got a bow, what do you need? Arrows. This is when you start breaking it down. So he's got a weapon, but he doesn't have to use it. It's a bloodless victory. In other words, people willingly follow him. People willingly submit to him because he, he offers them peace. He gives them something that they want. So people put their hope, their trust, their faith in him because he has achieved peace where others seemed to have failed. Through diplomacy, he has negotiated 
a peace treaty. And most scholars would say this is in relation to the Middle East. It would make sense, wouldn't it? What's the one place they haven't been able to find peace? Israel. Isn't that true? That, that everywhere else they seem to be able to negotiate some sort of peace apart from Israel. And so most scholars would say there's somebody going to come along and somehow they're going to negotiate a peace with Israel and the surrounding nations. And it may be that, and, and, and the, the feeling among a lot of scholars is this person will come along and the, the Jews will be able to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount, which they've never been able to do since it was destroyed. And in, um, in return for that, they will, the, the Palestinians, they will come to an agreement with the Palestinians and they will give all give up land to Palestine. And this will be celebrated as some great peace thing. And, and the new temple, they'll even start to talk later about them sacrificing in the temple. They'll start to do sacrifices again and everything. Uh, and, and, but then there will be a desecration in the temple. But it will be deceiving. Everybody will think this is great. You know what the problem with deception is? It's deceiving. Most people think it's really good. And it will look really good. But after three and a half years, the peace is suddenly shattered. And in other places, in Daniel, uh, this is very closely tied to Daniel 7 to 9. It talks about the abomination that causes desolation. Basically, this person or some antichrist figure will set up their own image in the temple and say, you have to worship me. And those who refuse to worship, then this will lead to the second one, which is war. The second horse is the red horse, fiery red. And it will take peace from the earth. It will make people kill each other. Nation will rise against nation. There will be killing and massacre and bloodshed. So once this peace fails, suddenly all hell is unleashed and there will be wars and, 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 and all of the nations in the Middle East probably that surround Israel who want to wipe her out will descend upon her at this stage and there will be wars throughout the earth. And that's why it is very red. There will be bloodshed and massacre. And then we come to horse number three. I'm trying to get through these. Horse number three, which is famine and economic meltdown and a food shortage. Black. Black is a sign of disaster, especially connected, I actually realized, to money and banking. Black Monday in 1987 was a stock market crash. We call Black Friday as a, a day of, of commercial trading when everything's reduced in price. The black economy is unrecorded and untaxed. And so horse number three is to do with finance, has to do with commerce, has to do with money, has to do with banking, and particularly has to do with shortages. And this thing about scales, there's weights on one side, so they're weighing out transactions. And look at what it says, a kilogram of wheat for a day's wages. A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages. In those days, a kilogram of wheat was the very minimum you needed for sustenance. To survive, just a bare minimum survival, you needed a kilogram of wheat per day, okay? So what it's saying is this. Just to survive with enough food for one person for one day, they will have to work all day. Imagine that. Imagine you work all day long and all you're able to do at the end of the day is to buy a meal for one. That's what it's saying. That actually things will become so tight, so difficult, that, that, that you will work and work and work and you'll hardly be able to afford anything. Or it says three kilograms of barley. Barley was what animals ate. In other words, yeah, if you have a family to feed, you can feed them rubbish. 
for the same price as one kilogram of wheat. In other words, that, that food will be in such short supply that your money will hardly go anywhere. Scholars would say that in the first century, uh, this, this was basically 10 to 12 times the amount that people were paying then for this. A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages. Actually, you'd have got 12 or maybe 14 kilograms for a day's wages back then. So what this is pointing to is hyperinflation. That actually you're, you're getting the same money, but it's not going anywhere near as far. And that's what we're seeing in places in the world, aren't we, more and more? Venezuela. Goods are doubling in price every three weeks in Venezuela at the minute. Prices rose by 4,000% in 2017. And I was reading that just today, people cannot afford their basic food items. Inflation is set to hit, wait till you hear this, 1.4 million percent this year in Venezuela. A worker must, this is true, I, I read this in one of the recent papers just in the last few weeks. In Venezuela, a worker must work two weeks to afford one bag of rice. Does that sound a little bit like this? It's also happening in Zimbabwe. 380, 350% inflation in September. Argentina. But notice what it says. Don't touch the oil and wine. The luxury items. In other words, the rich will keep getting richer. There will be this vast inequality where those in power will keep getting richer and they'll have their luxuries and they'll have all the best stuff while the poor keep getting poorer. There will be this incredible inequality and disparity. And horse number four, death. I see a pale horse. A pale horse. The actual word here is, is, is chloros. It's, it's kind of a greeny, yellowy color. It's the color of death. And, and when you start to think through all the different things that can happen, that have just happened, you can imagine there would be death. It's a sickly colour. There's war, there's famine, there's plague, there's pestilence, there's infection. Of course there's going to be death. And along behind death comes Hades, which is the place of the dead for those who don't believe in Christ. In other words, basically as people are dying, Hades are coming along and sweeping them up and bringing them to the place prepared for hell, those who don't know Jesus. And it's going to kill a quarter of the earth's inhabitants, which is somewhere between 1.5 and 2 billion people right now. This is happy, isn't it? <laughs> but you're glad you came to church this morning, eh? Go home and watch Joel Osteen when you get home. You'll cheer up a bit. Um, fifth sale, martyrdom we're getting there. Martyrdom persecution. I believe, and I don't think I need to be a prophet or the son of a prophet to tell you this, that we're entering a time of unparalleled persecution for God's people. Christians, but also Jews. That God still has a plan for Israel. And in the last 24 hours, haven't we seen that play out with that terrible shooting in Pennsylvania? The greatest act of anti-Semitism in America in recent history. That in the next coming decades, there will be increasing hostility towards God's people, Christians, but also anti-Semitism will be on the rise. And we are seeing that globally at the minute. God's people will become increasingly unpopular as they seek to remain true to the word of God. Do you know, in our culture, 50 years ago, Christians were celebrated. Church was celebrated. Morality was celebrated. Honesty and integrity was celebrated. 
And then something happened about 20 years ago where we started to get tolerated. We went from being celebrated to being tolerated. And now there's just open antagonism. Last week, just here, there was a banner in the church for something that's going to be happening. There's a banner in the fence. I can't, I, somebody got a big black marker and wrote F Christians on it. That's just a sign of what's going on in our culture. That wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. But there's this antagonism towards Christians and the church which is increasing and growing. And our society preaches a gospel of tolerance. And yet the only intolerance that is tolerated is hatred of people who are fervent about their faith in Jesus Christ. We tolerate everything except those who stick to the word of God. We cannot tolerate that. You can be Muslim, you can be Hindu, you can be atheist, you can be anything and the government and the law and the media will protect you. But for Christianity, it's open season. You can say and do what you want to Christians and nobody will say a thing. We can be mocked and we can be ridiculed and we're fair game. And those who hold fast to the truth and speak up for the truth will suffer for it. We will lose our rights. And only discrimination will be allowed against those who don't think that everything is okay. As long as you're for everything, you're fine. As long as any lifestyle, any sort of just sexual orientation, anything at all is okay, you're fine. But if you don't believe everything is okay, then you will end up in trouble. And even people who don't practice those lifestyles will try to tell you that you have to think it's okay. And there will be huge pressure, there will be physical punishment, there will be even murder and murder and martyrdom. You know, in the last 2,000 years, almost 7 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. 7 million. There's people in the world today who are meeting like we're meeting, but they've walked 20 miles They've kept looking over their shoulder. They've climbed flights of stairs and they're locked in a room with lookouts because they know at any minute people could burst in and put them in jail or kill them. And here we are and we sometimes complain it's too hot, it's too cold, the music was too loud, the music wasn't loud enough, blah, blah, blah. And we, you know, and I, we're human. But really, we were watching a video during the week of the underground church in China and just... It would just make you weep the passion that these believers have in China and the lengths they go to just to study the scriptures. And I believe that there is a time coming very soon when actually the pressure to conform to our culture will be so great that many will fall away. The sixth seal is natural disasters and heavenly signs. Earthquakes, sun turned black, darkness, blood red moons. Well, haven't we seen that in the last few years? Stars fall into earth, meteor shores. And then Jesus comes back. Next slide there, Bob. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. The question here is this. Where are Christians during the tribulation? Most scholars and most books I read said we're raptured before it. 
I would love that to be true. And this has really stumped me this week because as I got towards the end of my study, these commentators were saying, and of course Christians don't go through this because they're already raptured. And I'm going, I must have missed this somewhere. And I've gone through it and I've gone through it and I cannot find anywhere that the Christians are raptured before the tribulation. Some people say it's in Revelation 4 where he says to John, come up here. That's not it. Sometimes we we build our theology around what we would want it to say as opposed to what the Bible actually says. I don't believe that the church gets raptured before the tribulation. I believe we endure through the tribulation. John and the early Christians didn't get excused from it. You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card because you're a Christian. In fact, I think that tribulation is one of the best things that can happen to the church because it purifies the church. The hangers-on, the casual Christians, those who, who just go along because it's the thing to do, nominal Christianity in our culture, which is still there, the tribulation will sort that out. It will sort out the wheat from the weeds. And the church will be purer, it will be smaller, but it will be stronger. Nowhere in history do God's people escape trouble. Nowhere does it say that we will be spared at all. And in fact, when you look at the fifth seal, it talks about martyrs. There can't be martyrs if there's not Christians. It talks about later on how long, Lord, we'll get to that in a second. It's the cries of God's people. How can God's people cry out if they're already in heaven? I believe that the church will go through this. I believe that then when Jesus comes back, that's when we ascend and the rapture happens. But I don't believe it happens before the tribulation. You might disagree with me. That's okay. You're entitled to your view. Show me it from scripture. But in the midst of all the pain and suffering, God's people, the church, are crying out for relief. They're crying out for him to do something. Look at verses 9 to 11. We're nearly done. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had been maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true? until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How much longer do I have to endure this? Have you ever said that? How long, O Lord, do I have to go through this? How much longer do I have to suffer? How much longer do I have to watch my spouse my brother, my sister, lie in bed sick. How much longer do I have to go through this pain? How much longer do I have to go through this this abuse? How much longer do I have to endure this agony? How much longer, Lord, do I have to go through this singleness? How much longer, O Lord, do I have to go through this inability to conceive a child? How much longer? That's been the cry of God's people throughout the centuries. And, the, and, and it's, it's like, God, if you're king and you rule, why aren't you doing something? If you're really God and you're really on the throne and you really love me, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you punishing the people who are punishing us? Why aren't you avenging? Why aren't you executing judgment? Why are you letting them get away with this? And as we look at the evil in the world, sometimes you want to go, God, why are you not stepping in? Why are you not stopping this? You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting justice. I want to say that to you as a church. 
There's nothing wrong with wanting justice. And there's nothing even wrong with wanting vengeance. It's what that leads you to that is wrong. Because the Bible says in Romans 12, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. There's nothing wrong with wanting it. It's just not your place to do it. We leave it to him, knowing that ultimately he is in charge and he will put all things right. So what is God's response to how long, O Lord? He says, just a while longer. There will be more deaths, more persecution, more martyrs, but just wait before I step in with the final judgment. Why? Because I want to give more people time to repent. I want to give more people time to turn from sin and turn to Christ. I want to give people time to realize the error of their ways, to hear the gospel and turn to me in faith. He's even willing to let those who already know him die so that others will come to know him because we are already secure. But he longs, he desperately longs that the world, that as many as possible would come to repentance and faith and that the unrighteous would be saved. In Second Peter, we read the same thing to a church undergoing persecution and extreme pressure. Peter says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's a difference between God being slow and God being patient. God alone decides when the time is up. I don't get to decide. You don't. He does. And when it, you know, when it comes to those who have wronged us, we want God to be quick. When somebody has done something wrong to me, I'm like, God, go get them. Like, seriously, God, revenge, judgment, vengeance. God, what is keeping you? But what about us? Before we came to Christ, I'm so glad he was patient with me. He gave me chance after chance to hear about Jesus. I sat in St. Mark's Church in a gospel meeting. And Ian Knox was preaching. It was a gospel mission. And my three friends had got saved that week. And they turned to me and they said, Craig, what about you? And I said, not a chance. And I sat there and I said no. But he didn't let me go. And I'm so glad that between that date and the date of me coming to Christ, Jesus didn't come back. I'm so thankful that he's patient. He's not slow, but he is patient. What about those you love? Your family members who don't know Jesus, your friends. Yes, you want Jesus to to come and get rid of all the evil and and, and to to bring judgment and and, and just to get rid of all the filth in the world, but you want them to come to know him. And so it's like, Lord, how long? But please, just a little longer. His patience towards sinners doesn't mean he's tolerant of sin. He lets it run his full course. Look at the end of chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? The kings of the earth, the kings of politics, the kings of nations, the kings of entertainment, the kings of sport, the kings of the economy, the kings of business, they are terrified. 
because they see the consequences of their own choices and they cry out in fear for mercy. Isn't it interesting? Look at what they say, the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For Christians, we don't talk about the wrath of the Lamb. We talk about the blood of the Lamb because he's our Savior, he's our Redeemer, he's our sacrifice. But for those who reject Jesus, all they see is wrath. They see him as judge. And they now realize that Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just another religious leader. He was King of kings, Lord of lords, God, judge of all the earth. And at last, they see him as he is. And I want to finish by saying this. God is never the source of evil, but he will use evil for his ultimate purposes. The Bible makes this very clear. God will never be the source of sin and evil. The Bible makes that clear. But he will use it for his purposes and plans. And at times he will let us see and experience wickedness for what it is. So that we look at it and we find it so repugnant and so disgusting and so vile that we turn away from it. And that's why we will see an intensity in these judgments. It's almost like if you've got a child... And they do something wrong. You say, stop that. And they push it a little bit more. And you go, stop it. And then you warn them. You say, no more treats. And they keep doing it. And then you send them to the step. And they keep doing it. And eventually, you keep notching it up. And you keep notching it up. Because you want them to learn to do the right thing. And the intensity of the judgments increases. And it's not because God is just wanting to get angry and pouring. He's trying to say, well, if you wouldn't repent, maybe you'll repent for this. And maybe if you, if you wouldn't repent there, maybe you'll repent here. And he's pouring out more and more because he wants us to get so... He wants the unsaved sinners to get so repelled by, by what's going on around them that they turn to Christ. You know, I had a family member who in his teens got caught up in the whole ray of sin. Circus Circus in Bambridge. And when he was 17, 18, I was going to say my mum. Um, no, um, it wasn't her. But uh, he, was, he was going out every week and he was doing whatever, taking drugs, doing whatever. And his life was going really downhill. And uh, we all could see what was going on with him and we tried to talk him out of it, but there was no talking to him. He refused to listen. He became angry. He became aggressive. He hurt people. And he made a lot of wrong choices. And that went on for maybe two years. And then one day he just changed. And he started to become more like his old self again. He stopped going to these clubs. He got his life back in order. And he's done really well in life. He's happily married with two kids and doing really well in life. But a number of years later I was talking to him and I said, what happened? What turned your life around? Because I remember when you were living for going out and getting off your head every Saturday night and then suddenly just like that you stopped. What happened? What brought the change? And this is what he told me. He said one night he was out at the rave as usual. He had taken some pills but they were obviously fake so they weren't working. And he says that night because he wasn't off his head he looked around in the club and saw all these other young people 14, 15, 16 year olds who were just a mess. And he said to himself, that's what I'm normally like. I don't want to be like this. And so that day he left that life behind. Seeing the full extent of the evil of drugs was ultimately used for good. God never wanted him to go on drugs. God never wanted any of those kids to go on drugs. But God used that 
to let him see so that he would turn away from it. God can take that which is meant for evil and turn it for good. And he puts strict limits on evil, how far it will go. This far and no further. But he can and he will use it for his ultimate purposes and glory. We see that with Joseph in the Old Testament. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. When his brother sold him into slavery. We see it in the famous Romans 8.28. That God works all things. God doesn't cause all things that are bad, but he works all things for our good and for his glory. And so if you love him, it doesn't excuse you from pain and suffering. It doesn't excuse you from heartache. It doesn't excuse you from sickness. It doesn't excuse you from pain. But what God says is this, that you are mine and I will work through it. Let me finish with a story. So in the book Crazy Love by Francis John, And he talks about a 14-year-old girl called Brooke Bronkowski. And they were given a writing project in school. And this girl, Brooke Bronkowski, was one of the only Christians in her class and she'd been mocked and she'd been ridiculed for it. But for this writing project, it was kind of, what do you want to do with your life? What's, What's your dreams for the future? And this is what she wrote, Since I Have My Life Before Me by Brooke Bronkowski. She said this, I'll live my life to the fullest. I'll be happy. I'll brighten up. I will be more joyful than I've ever been. I'll be kind to others. I will loosen up. I will tell others about Christ. I will go on adventures and change the world. I will be bold and not change who I really am. I will help others with their troubles. You see, I'll be one of those people who live to be history makers at a young age. Oh, I'll have moments good and bad, but I'll wipe away the bad and remember the good. In fact, that's all I'll remember, just good moments. Nothing in between, just living my life to the fullest. I'll be one of those people who go somewhere with a mission, an awesome plan, a world-changing plan, and nothing will hold me back. I'll set an example for others. I will pray for direction. I have my life before me. I will give others the joy I have and God will give me more joy. I will do everything God tells me to do. I will follow the footsteps of God. I will do my best. And then Francis Chan writes this. Brooke Bronkowski was a beautiful 14-year-old girl who was in love with Jesus. When she was in junior high, she started a Bible study in school. She spent her babysitting money on Bibles so that she could give them to her unsaved friends. Youth pastors who heard about this bought her boxes of Bibles to give away. During her freshman year in high school, which is, we'd call it fourth form, um, Brooke was in a car accident while driving to the movies. Her life on earth ended when she was just 14, but her impact didn't. Nearly 1,500 people attended Brooke's memorial service. People from her public high school read poems she had written about her love for God. Everyone spoke of her example and joy. And Francis Chan says, I shared the gospel and invited those who wanted to know Jesus to come up and give their lives to him. There must have been at least 200 students on their knees at the front of the church praying for salvation. Ushers gave a Bible to each one of them. They were Bibles that Brooke had kept in her garage, hoping to give out to all of her unsaved friends. In one day, Brooke led more people to the Lord than most ever will. In her brief 14 years on earth, Brooke was faithful to Christ. Her life was not wasted. The words from her essay seem prophetic. You see, I'll be one of those people who live to be history makers at a young age.
And Francis Chan finishes with this, and I want to finish with this today. The truth is, some people waste their lives. I think it's easier to hear a story like Brooks and just move on without acknowledging that it could just as easily be you or me or my wife or your brother whose life ends suddenly. You could be the next person in your family to die. I could be the next person in our church to die. We have to realize it. We have to believe enough, believe it enough that it changes how we live. And we need to commit ourselves. We need to commit ourselves to live for Jesus every moment we have to be passionate about him and reaching others with his love and grace. The time is short. Let's have hope not just as the name of our church, but let's be a people of unrelenting hope who go into a dark and desperate world and point them to the ultimate and only source of hope. As the days grow darker, let's shine brighter. And let's point them to Jesus.